This is an ABC podcast. It's become fashionable to look down on people who have trouble getting rid of stuff. We even have a label for them. We call them hoarders. We pity them and shake our heads even as we voyeuristically scrutinise their behaviour on reality TV. No one wants that label. But according to Darshana Sadera from Southern Cross University, many of us are already hoarders, even if we're not aware of it. Digital hoarders, that is. Many of us are involved in this shifting of the gears into the next, next, into the next, into the next, and don't have the time or the attitude or the aptitude to remove things that we do not need. So one of the, the, the suggestions that we have jokingly made or semi-seriously made is to have a digital spring cleaning day for one to really to look at what you have and to exclude things. And there'll be heaps, there'll be 90% of things that one could exclude if you take a quick look at what you have in your stock. Well, there we are. That certainly sounds like a challenge. Digital Hoarders, later in the program. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense. To a stock take of a different kind, and the screen industry in Australia has been reviewing the health of the film and television sector. And the news is not good. They've upped their campaign to have local content quotas imposed on the big US-based streaming services that now dominate our viewing world. A recent report by Screen Australia showed that at $446 million, the streaming giants now outspend their free-to-air rivals, when it comes to Australian drama at least. But that actually says more about the sorry state of Australian television networks than it does about anything else. Screenwriter Peter Matesi. Firstly, it's great that people are spending money on local content. I don't know if that is a spend on new productions or is it an acquisition of existing library. So spend on new productions is brilliant. Both are brilliant. Acquiring old Australian shows to put on streaming services is wonderful because it provides income to those people who created them back in the day, but it doesn't necessarily stimulate our industry now and it doesn't help us tell stories about Australia now. And also, we also need to look at that spend in the context of how much these streamers are taking out of our country in revenue. And it's somewhere around $2.5 billion a year at the moment. It's going to get to around $3.5 billion in the next few years. So that's a huge, huge amount of money. So it's a good start. It's great that these streamers are investing in, in local content in Australia, but we need to know what they're investing in and we also need to make sure that it's proportionate to how much money they're taking out of Australia. And keeping in mind as well that Netflix only started paying tax this year. They've been in their country, haven't paid any tax on their billions of dollars of revenue for however long they've been in Australia, seven, eight, nine years. So that's, that's a lot of money that's been left on the table, a lot of money generated by Australian audiences that's been left on the table or taken overseas that we would love to see invested in new Australian content and Australian stories in a manner sort of proportionate to how much their revenue is. So, new or old, exactly how much Australian produced material is actually finding its way onto the streaming platforms? Claire Pullen is the Executive Director of the Australian Writers Guild. So on Apple TV, which is not one of the major ones that people often think about, but comes for free with a lot of people's devices, so it's actually a a platform that's used a great deal, there's none. There is no Australian content on the Apple TV service. Paramount Plus has the largest amount of Australian content on it, and that falls in, I think, at just under 10% of their catalogue. 
A lot of that's back catalogue, though, that they acquired when they came to Australia. So it really depends which service you're talking about, how much TV you can get. And I presume by what you just said then, we're not talking about a significant lot of new content, new Australian content. No, that's exactly right. Most of the content that's available is more than five years old on the streamers. And the reason that's important, apart from the the jobs piece, which I'm sure we'll get to, is that as of last year, more Australians now get their screen content through video on demand in one format or another than through the terrestrial broadcast and through the, the free-to-airs like Channel 7, Channel 9 and Channel 10. And that's a really big shift in how we see ourselves on the screen and engage with that type of content. And every indication is that that trend is likely to continue, if not to grow. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly in Australia, we're one of the larger markets in the world for the streamers. We're a good place for them to come and sell their subscriptions. I think we're the seventh or eighth largest consumer in the world of the streamers' content. I was going to ask you what sort of content is not making its way onto the streaming giants, but from the sound of it, that's almost all of it. Yeah, it is quite a lot. The one that most worries me in my role is kids' content. Last year, Channel 7 screened six and a half hours of original Australian kids' content. On free-to-air. On free-to-air, that's right. And that's a trend that's been replicated across the streamers as well. I spent um, more time than I would have liked during COVID lockdowns dealing with schooling at home. And I used to wonder before that why my stepkids said math instead of maths. And now I know because their educational content is all delivered with an American accent. So that's what they hear day in, day out when they're learning in a a screen-based way. Just remind us what the current local content limit requirements are for streaming services. And and Uh, also just let us know again what the quotas are for free-to-air television as well. Well, there are none for the streamers at the moment. There is no requirement that they make any Australian content. There was a change last year where the then minister set up a reporting scheme and the following from that with the minister at his discretion or her discretion now, if the streamers were making less than 5% of Australian content, they could then subsequently be required to make more. But it's a discretionary target at the minister's discretion and Because the first year of reporting isn't yet over, there are no targets for the streamers. For the terrestrial broadcasters, they're required to screen a certain number of hours of Australian content a year. That was halved during COVID. What that meant, of course, is that that halved Australian production. So there's two issues here, isn't there? There's the content issue, but there's also this unfair playing field where the overseas streaming giants, most of them American, are, are having an advantage over Australian networks. Yes, absolutely. And they're making a lot of money doing so. Netflix, I think last year made a billion dollars in Australia. That's one of the streaming services. And we have, I have personally have eight, which is something of a sneaky confession, but I'm sure most people have at least two or three. So they're making a lot of money here and they're not reinvesting back into what is a really secure and stable first world democracy with great crews, great writers, great actors, great directors, where good content gets made. We have a relatively new federal government in Canberra. Have there been any signs that the Albanese government will take a different approach to content quotas than, you know, a different approach to its conservative predecessor? Yes, there have. Both the the Minister, Tony Burke, and the Special Envoy to the Arts, Susan Templeman, have been pretty clear that they want to look at putting a quota on the streamers. And to be honest, I think the streamers have mostly accepted that. Their slates in the last year have shown a really 
remarkable uptick. All of a sudden, they're uh, commissioning Australian shows. So what sort of quota would we be looking at? And I know this is this is not just a, an issue here in Australia where, you know, it hasn't got much coverage broadly, but it is a hot issue in Europe, isn't it? What sort of quotas do they have? Yeah, very much so. Depending on the country, we're talking about up to 30%. And if you, if you don't mind indulging me, I'll just explain what I mean. We're talking about a percentage of locally generated revenue from the subscription service. So when you pay your $16.99 a month or your $9.99 a month, it's that money that we're talking about. So for Amazon, for example, which has Prime Video, it's not about a percentage of their package delivery service. Or for Disney, it's not about a part of their retail services they offer. It's just about the subscription. So what we're after is a percentage of that locally generated revenue being put into creating Australian content. So in Europe, 30% is the reinvestment quota with sub-quotas around documentary, kids and scripted content. Canada have only recently passed some legislation around this. They were looking at between 25 and 45%. So it's a significant amount of money when you think about how much is made on Australian subscriptions every year. I just wonder, is Australia disadvantaged in a sense because it's an English-speaking country? Is it easier to mount an argument for the cultural necessity of content quotas if you're talking about productions in languages other than English? Yeah, very much so. You've hit the nail on the head. There are a lot of countries in Europe that don't have quotas at all. But those are countries where the language confines the market, if you will. Germany, for example, don't have a quota, uh, but the only place you can have German TV made in German is in Germany. So they're confined in that way and to have local content production is much more organic. We compete with the two largest screen markets in the world, in the UK and the US, with populations far above ours and much better established screen industries in terms of the both private and public investment. And so we get lost in some ways with that sort of competition where there's an ocean available. If you go on a streaming, you can see plenty from both those countries. You know, to be fair, both of those countries also subsidise their screen industries reasonably heavily. Having said that, Australian content markets well. People love our stories. There's an enduring cultural weight to them overseas. And we're developing our own genres, particularly of crime, of blue sky noir, your outback kind of crime drama. So there's an opportunity here as well to sell products overseas. And the data shows that when we make Australian TV, it exports really well. So if we're looking at introducing quotas for Australian content on streaming services, what kind of content should get priority? From our point of view, we need to talk about scripted drama, so scripted content. We need to talk about documentary and we need to talk about kids' content and the things that should be prioritised. For us, that's because those types of content fill up the whole job chain, if you will. So if you think about reality TV, that's a type of television that usually doesn't have writers and usually doesn't have actors. So you're taking out two of the key creatives out of the process there, which means they're coming out of the economy, if you will. Whereas for scripted content, you have both actors and writers being part of that production. But look, to be honest, that's also, there's a creative imperative to that in terms of us telling our stories and and telling ourselves and the world who we are. And it's also the type of content that people like. The global trend is towards what's called prestige TV or your premium television. Things like The Sopranos, Orange is the New Black. And in Australia, it's Mystery Road and Jack Irish and Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, just as examples. That's the sort of content that people want. And that is highly authored content. Writers are involved at all stages of the production process, including in some cases running the shows. 
We looked at this issue a few years back and there were warnings then about a sizeable impact on Australian culture and on the screen industry from the largely unregulated arrival of the US streaming giants. Why weren't those warnings taken on board? I think at the time the minister was less convinced about the cultural arguments around the impact and the worth of Australian stories. The other thing that's changed in the last two years, and this is something that's really sticks in my mind. Like I said, more Australians now get their content through a video on demand service than through the terrestrial broadcasters. And it's easy, I think, when thinking about television to get stuck in those older models of you turn on the TV at six o'clock and the thing is on, rather than it's on demand, there's an algorithm driving your engagement. You know, there's lookalike audiences being built. There's all sorts of tools to get you to watch certain things. And to be honest, I think there's much more of a a curiosity and an interest in what the future of the industry looks like now from the current government. Well, Claire Pullen from the Australian Writers Guild, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Hoarders and hoarding now. And Professor Darshana Sidera, Director of the Digital Enterprise Lab, at Southern Cross University. So the hoarding itself, the hoarding comes from the DSM-5 classification, the psychological classification that psychologists use to assess whether someone is hoarding or not. That classification has three characteristics predominantly. It's got the propensity of the clutter that you see, how much you collect, and your difficulty of discarding, difficulty of departing from that asset, thereby creating anxiety or stress. So these are the three things that are in the DSM-5 classification. And in the DSM-5, what we have done in our study is that we've looked at whether these three characteristics exist in the digital world. And what we see is, yes, there are some traits of it coming through. And how do you know if you're a digital hoarder or whether you're just, in fact, lazy or not very good at organising your files? Yeah, so that's, that's, that's a very important question that you're asking. So in the traditional hoarding setup, When your room gets filled up, soon you will realize that your physical space will be constricted. You will have difficulty of moving, you will realize, and there's some alarm bells that one could see. Even if you don't see it, your family, your friends will see that and could call for help. What we see in digital is that we don't really see those kind of limitations in relation to space. Even if we do, we tend to ignore them. We tend to attend to them at the last minute. And better so, what we can do is that we can expand the space. By doing so, we are not actually eliminating the problem. We are postponing the problem for the next time. But what we don't realize is that when we expand those spaces, the problem has aggravated by multiple times there because you have expanded. You You haven't dealt with the issue. You've simply expanded the space. You collect more and more and more. Now you have a bigger problem when that space runs out. So in our sample, you'll be astonished to hear that we have individuals who have collected more than big companies collect in their entire lifetime. And these are individuals who, like you and me, would take photographs, videos, emails and documents and etc. Terabytes of data, multiple ways of storing them in, in storing devices, in cloud and emails and etc. Now for your survey, you had more than 800 respondents. Correct. Is it possible to tell how prevalent digital hoarding is? Well, from the survey itself, this is a survey of average 
normal individuals who, like you and I, would not use digital devices or digital platforms or digital assets more than anyone else. So this is just normal average bloke off the street. From our data, what we can see is that all of us, first of all, have traces of excessive attachment, even if you don't call it hoarding, excessive attachment, difficult of discarding, clutter propensity. We see those characteristics. But to claim that someone is a digital holder is the next step in the research, which requires multiple samples, larger samples doing from multiple methods. Uh, keeping in mind that DSM-5 classification traditional hoarding to be included, it took them nearly about 20 years of research. So we're talking about a very sensitive psychological behavioral trait, which requires much more further investigation. But we see traits of that in every individual. I see it in myself. I see it in my family. I see it in my colleagues. But the extent of that could vary. And of course, with the extent of variation, you would find that the level of anxiety that runs within you goes up and down. And what's going to happen with social media, the prevalence of digitalization around us, this is only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. There's no way out. If you don't recognize that there's a potential problem, not a problem, but a potential problem, then we'll be at loss very soon. Now, you talked about stress there, and we mm -hmm. know that with physical hoarders, there's yeah. often mental health impacts right. from the activity yeah. over a period of time. Yeah. Is it likely then that we will see mental health impacts above and beyond stress starting to appear in, in people as a result of digital hoarding? Absolutely, Anthony. For example, what our study also found empirically is that there's a direct relationship between the number of digital devices you hold, the number of social media presence that you have, and even the number of friends that you would have in your social media accounts or number of followers you would have actually exacerbate this feeling of anxiety. We're dealing with something that's right at our doorstep right now, but we seem to ignore it. We seem to ignore. We, we talk about like the, the peer pressure coming from social media, the fear of missing out coming from social media. This would be at the same level, if not even bigger, because we don't realize it until it becomes much, much more larger within us. The system, in, in a sense, is stacked against people, isn't it? Everything is set up for us to generate and collect data. Absolutely. But there are two sides to this. So there's the private individual and the private individual in the society amongst the corporations that we deal with. So if a corporation wishes to collect data about us, let's say my travel patterns, my buying patterns, my purchasing power, etc., that data doesn't sit with me. That sits with them. So that's their problem. That itself is a problem in many other ways, but not so in the digital holding space. But where it matters to us is when we started voluntarily or involuntarily started collecting data within our digital premises. May that be on social media, may that be on emails, may that be on USBs or other external devices, our cameras, our GoPros and etc. All of these are part of that ecosystem. But what you say is absolutely right. Many of these devices, platforms, ecosystems that we have not just encourage us, but it almost like happens automatically. It's almost like that you have to stop manually in order for you to stop collecting the data on you 
or from your devices, you've got to manually stop doing that. So that provision of collecting data or the pictures or the videos or the, the other essence of what is happening to you, it happens automatically. And more so, this is like I said earlier, this increases the moment someone likes something, they will click like on our picture. We will never delete that because that someone has liked it. Now I have an association with that picture. I'm attached to that picture. And the mechanism for us to take part in that equation has made it much more easier by the platform providers and the, the technology companies. So that's where I think the difficulty of, of deleting something, difficulty of discarding something happens. There's an other side to it, if I may explain. So the other side is that many of us now have chosen to mimic our personal life on digital platforms. So if I go to a retailer, I would leave my digital footprint there. And that's I'm doing consciously with my knowledge that I'm leaving it there. If I want to buy something, I may buy it online. I'm leaving my footprint there. Now, those footprints are also things that are part of this. By being in this ecosystem, I'm mimicking my personal life every day what I eat, what I drink, what I watch, who I work with, who I have a social life with, everything is now captured in this. So this is going to be very, very difficult for individuals into the future. Many of us are involved in this shifting of the gears into the next, next, into the next, into the next, and don't have the time or the attitude or the aptitude to remove things that we do not need. So one of the, the, the suggestions that we have jokingly made or semi-seriously made is to have a digital spring cleaning day for one to really to look at what you have and to exclude things. And there'll be heaps, there'll be 90% of things that one could exclude if you take a quick look at what you have in your stock. Well, Professor Darshana Sidera, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. When I say the word conservation, what exactly comes to mind? A forest or a sweeping savanna, trees or even animals? Perhaps all of those combined. But I reckon it's a fair bet that not many of us think about dirt, with the possible exception of David Eldridge from the University of New South Wales. David is an environmental scientist and he's been investigating what he calls the world's vulnerable soil hotspots. So when we talk about nature conservation, we think about, and hotspots, we think about, okay, the Amazon or maybe southern South Africa that supports, you know, many, many species of plants, or even Western Australia. But we never think about conserving microbes. Where are all the microbes? Are they everywhere in our soil? Or are there locations where we have different groups of microbes that are doing different things? The current reserve system does not protect or give adequate protection to those dimensions of soils, the diversity, the uniqueness and the services that they provide. So we're going to have to think about how we can protect the diversity of these soil organisms, maybe outside traditional conservation areas, maybe on farm or devoting new areas to protect this diversity, soil diversity. Maybe we need to think outside the box. What then are the, the policy implications of that? The policy implications are that if you want to have a soil, for example, that sequesters a lot of CO2, that helps us to fight climate change, you need to protect areas where 
particular microbial communities or invertebrate communities in those soils that do that particular service are protected. And that might mean setting up reserves for soils, setting up reserves for organisms that fight climate change or that filter our water. So soil biology then needs to be factored in much more in terms of conservation policy. Soil biology, I think, needs to be mainstream. It needs to be sexy. It needs to be advanced to the level that we think about when we think about conservation. When we think about conservation, as I said before, we think about plants and animals. We don't think about soils and the critical processes that they provide. We know that unless we can support these organisms, we're not going to be able to function effectively as we move to a drier, more variable climate. It seems extraordinary in one sense, doesn't it, that we, you know, we are rightly concerned about trees, we're rightly concerned about animals, but we've forgotten in lots of ways the biology that underpins the growth of those, those trees and those animals. Do you know why I think that is? I think this is because we've lost connection with the soil. So 200 years ago, most communities would be living in a farming situation. And even think about 30 years ago, everyone had an uncle who owned a farm. Everyone used to go to their uncle or their cousin's place and they lived in the country. We've forgotten where milk comes from. Milk comes from bottles. Oh, it comes from cows. I didn't realise that. We've forgotten where our produce comes from. So we've forgotten about that intimate link between farming and soil and why soil is so critical. I think most school kids don't really understand the essential role that soils provide. They just think about it as dirt. They, they don't realise that most of our food derives from soil. That's a shame, really. It's real shame. And in terms of tackling climate change, I mean, what are the consequences if we don't put more of a priority on soil? If we don't put more of a priority on soils and then we'll lose the ability to fight climate change by acting as a sink for carbon dioxide. So soil is the greatest, provides the greatest pool of carbon globally. And so if we degrade our soil, we reduce the opportunities for it to grab onto CO2 and get carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. The consequences are going to be disastrous. Not only do we lose that ability to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere, but we lose the ability to enhance soil carbon to produce food. If we don't have carbon in the soil, carbon is like a glue. It holds soils together. And that carbon comes from carbon dioxide and microbes that are producing carbon, breaking down organic matter. That process is critically important, not just to fight climate change, but to also filter water and to store atmospheric pollutants and to produce food. So it kind of all goes together. Tell us about the characteristics of the soil hotspots that you identified and, and where they are. Soil hotspots are places where we've identified a diverse community of soil organisms. We're not just talking about microbes, bacteria, fungi, but we're talking about invertebrates, where we have identified unique communities of soil organisms that do different things, and where we've kind of optimised the services that they provide, the services like we talked about before, enhancing carbon, filtering nutrients, sequestering CO2 from the atmosphere providing healthy water. So that's the characteristics of these hotspots. And the hotspots are located in places like the eastern coast of North America, the east coast of China, in Australia, Cape York and Arnhem Land has been identified as a hotspot, Central and South America. And Norway, interestingly enough, has come up 
as a one of these hotspots of soil biological activity. We do have hotspots all around the place, which is great. But as I said before, less than 10% of these areas are currently in a formal reserve system. So we need to think about how we can give them more formal protection. So are there things about these soil hotspots that can help us better manage other conservation areas? That's a great question. And I think there's probably two ways of looking at this. We know that diverse communities of whatever, animals, birds, plants, and also soil organisms are much better at resisting the impacts of disturbance, whether that disturbance, land use change, clearing, climate change, or whatever. So sites that are more diverse are going to be more resistant to change. So I think you're right that these hotspots can tell us something about how to improve soils in different systems. David Eldridge from the University of New South Wales. We also heard today from Claire Pullen at the Australian Writers Guild, screenwriter Peter Matesi and Darshana Sadera from the Digital Enterprise Lab at Southern Cross University. Karen Savanovitz is my co-creator here at Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.